Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm Erica Lynn, and we all know the ocean is the most demanding environment on Earth, consistently testing the reliability and durability of our equipment. When you spend as much time fishing as I do, you know that reliable gear is essential for staying on the water. This is why I went with Abyss Battery to power my trolling motor, electronics, and outboard. The guys at Abyss Battery are rattling the saltwater industry by manufacturing performance marine batteries specifically designed for sonar, outboards, trolling motors, and electronic fishing reels. They're also Bluetooth compatible, so I found Checking battery statuses right on your phone while you're out on the water is a huge game changer. To learn more about why Abyss batteries are used by the pros and factory installed by Premier Boat Builders, visit abyssbattery.com. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler podcast. I am your host, Trevor Williams, and this is the one podcast for anybody curious to learn about where their food comes from, about farming, ranching, entrepreneurs in the ag tech space, and all the awesome direct-to-consumer businesses, and all the other, you know, countless companies that make agriculture what it is. So today on the show, we are interviewing a farmer from Montana who has really farmed everywhere. Like, he's farmed in France, Iowa, Canada, and now the great state of Montana. His name is Frank Groenweg, and he has got an amazing story. During our interview, Frank is going to tell us basically um, how he farmed basically all across the world, how he and his family practiced regenerative agriculture, how that practice was, like how difficult it was, and also something that I thought was really interesting, kind of the idea of sharing ideas with with other farmers, seeing what works with them, what doesn't, and just really being collaborative and working on building up a network, which, you know, Regardless what industry you work in, it's all about building up a network and building relationships. So I think that was a fun story that Frank's going to talk about as well. And they've also started to work on building a flour mill and delivering direct to consumers. Things like wheat, canola, chickpeas, stuff like that. So this is an awesome interview. Um, I had a blast chatting with Frank. And be sure to check out their website. It's livingskygrains.com. And then you can also follow him on Twitter and we'll link all of that in the description below. But hope you enjoy it. And again, this is episode 140 with Frank Groenweg. All right. Well, Frank Groenweg, welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast, man. How are you doing? Oh, very good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I, I'm super excited to chat with you. You've got, it seems like a very interesting background. You've grown in, in France, Iowa, Canada, Montana, so it seems like you know your stuff. So kind of before we talk about that, give us a little bit of a background about you. Well, I uh, grew up in France uh, and uh, in, a, in a farming family. Actually, my heritage is Dutch. My grandparents moved from, uh, mm. from uh, the Netherlands to France after the Second World War. And um, fairly adventurous, very passionate about agriculture. And in the uh, mid-90s, I wanted to see what it was like to uh, the farming and the, the, the farming in, um, in the U.S., and uh, through relation of relation, I visited some people uh, in um, in northwest in uh, central Iowa actually, 
and uh, help them with harvest corn and soybean harvest. And I just uh, kind of fell out, fell in love with uh, the country, the, the mentality and uh, the people. And, and really the, the farming was not exactly what I was expected. I, I, expecting, I was expecting really wide open spaces uh, and huge equipment. And uh, I didn't exactly find that. I mean, it was a big room, a little bigger than home, but, but not so much. And so uh, just love the, the farming mentality and found some people in Northwest Iowa with the same last name and went and visited them. <laughs> uh, and it was just a bit of quite, quite the adventure. And it was a, it was a great experience. And at that point, I, I kind of knew I wanted to, uh, to, uh, to, to move to the U.S. I took a little bit, but uh, it happened. And I wanted to farm in Northwest Iowa, which was pretty much, I mean, Nothing's impossible, but it was so expensive and different things. And uh, um, met my wife when she was studying at a Christian university there. And uh, her family said, why don't you look into Saskatchewan, Canada? And originally, we weren't really that excited about it. But after a, a number of roadblocks, uh, uh, being able to, uh, to farm in northwest Iowa, we moved to Saskatchewan and bought a farm there. And the opportunities were huge over there in uh, the early 2000s. Uh, we grew that farm uh, very aggressively over time. And um, in about 2017, I kind of hit a roadblock of like my early 40s or not a roadblock, but just a bit of, okay, a uh, bit of midlife crisis. I hope it's not <laughs> midlife because I fully intend to do it. You know, if, if if God lets me to uh, to go over a hundred, so let's let's call it even a third life crisis. Uh, and, uh, and at that point, it was uh, you know wanted to, just started to wonder where what else we would do. And we had uh, we did a little bit of, of mission work and different things. Um, and uh, we had a chance to sell our farm um, at, at very good values. And and to, it was uh, it was a time to be able to say, hey, uh, maybe it's time to. Uh, uh, to do that, and uh, and then we we found this place, this farm in um, in uh, close to Bozeman, Montana, uh, Three Forks, and uh, where the whole family was basically behind in moving uh, moving to Montana, and it's been very good since. Uh, one of of the attraction was is we are uh, uh, delivering wheat to a bakery, a local bakery called Wheat Montana. And uh, actually, we want to be closer to the to to the uh, to the consumer, and uh, we actually just uh, launched our own brand of uh, wheat flour at this point. That's that's so fascinating. I mean, what were so you were farming in France and then Iowa and then Canada? What were some like key differences you found along the way? Like, what was different in France versus Iowa and Canada? Like, what what did you kind of find there? You know, I, I guess there would be uh, the it. There'd be multiple differences, I guess, when it, <laughs> it, it, uh, you know, but but actually, you know, I, I would actually say it's more the same than it is different. Uh, mm, okay. the, uh, you know, the weather is never right. And uh, a breakdown always happens Friday, down to, fr- Friday night at five o'clock. So, <laughs> <laughs> so really, I would say no matter where you're at in the world, um, there is a, a very uh, strong theme of what uh, agriculture is about and and there we uh we all have the same problems and opportunities with different names so uh it's really that's yeah that's what it is and 
And we place as farmers, we place ourselves where it hurts the least. And as farmers or as, as individuals uh, in any matter of job. Uh, so I think we're handed a set of skills and then we try to find where these skills kind of plug in the best and and where it maybe uh, is hurts the least. And then uh, that's, that's where we find ourselves. And and uh, for me, I'm probably a sucker for punishment, and <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I'm I'm a I'm a dreamer, and um, yeah, I like I like to see what's what's elsewhere, uh, and and try to you know see what how how we can uh, take on opportunities wherever they are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's good to know that no matter where you are, every other country, the shop is going to close at 5 p.m. on Friday. And so if you have that breakdown at 5 p.m., you got to wait till Monday. Well, you do, or you just got to be able to, you know, figure out the back door <laughs> to, <Yeah. laughs> to the people that can help you. And, and you know, and to that extent, it's uh, it's all about relationship. Um, you know, there there are things, our, our, our life uh, has been of opportunities that have been exercised by relationship and it's all about people as much as you know maybe banks or 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 just anything uh, we want to just go on an online and have less re- relational um, uh, you know opportunities it's still about the people that's that seems to be uh, what what happens and we've uh, We've been blessed with a tremendous amount of, of great people in, uh, on, on our journey. And uh, if it wasn't for them, uh, we wouldn't be where, where we are. It's, um, it, it's, it's truly uh, it, team effort is maybe a little bit of a cliche, but um, <laughs> it's, it's so much about the people you find on the way and, and build relationships with. Do you think you gotta, you've got to work on being intentional with those relationships or, um, you know, kind of getting out of your comfort zone and just like, you know what, we're where we're supposed to be. So what do you think about that? Oh, definitely. You, um, I mean, I, I, again, if, uh, if, if that's your, you, you can't make somebody do something or, or mm-hmm. I think it won't last, but still you can, um, you can stretch yourself. And then what you said, getting out of your comfort zone um, I think for anybody is always very re- rewarding in, in the end. Um, I think we're, we're made to learn and to explore. And some people, uh, you know, are the, let's say the Lewis and Clarks <laughs> that go, <laughs> you know, in, in uncharted territories and they, you know, they have this adventurous, uh, spirit to the max. And then some people, I mean, they're, their adventure spirits is is a whole lot narrower. Nevertheless, uh, that's that's how they're made up. Is and I think no matter how where you are on that spectrum, um, it is very enriching to uh, to step out of that comfort zone. Whether it's a uh, you know a huge leap for some people uh, or a small step for others. Yeah, that, those are really good points. I like that. Um, so you're in Montana now. My wife and I and um, her parents, we actually went to Bozeman last year for Christmas. Mm. And it was so fun. It was beautiful. It was like it was honestly the first time I'd ever seen snow. I was 29 <laughs> then. I'm 30 now. So it took me 29 years to finally see snow. And we saw a lot of it. Bozeman yeah. was absolutely beautiful. Yeah. It, we uh, we enjoy this place. There's no doubt that, uh, I mean, the, the scenery, the, the Rocky Mountains, um, there's 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 a there's a strong vibe about Bozeman and Montana in general. Yeah, I bet. So I mean, 
What's it like farming up there? I mean, I know it's cold. You guys have a harsh winter. So what's that whole process like of growing crops up there in, in Montana and Bozeman? So we uh, uh, we grow wheat, uh, so spring wheat and winter wheat, uh, chickpeas, uh, flax, uh, canola, um, and then other other crops in, here and there, trying this or that. Um, but yeah, like you said, the, the winter is there. And uh, compared to, let's say, Saskatchewan, the winter is not quite as long, but it's still, you know, by the time we hit like the first of November and really till the... Oh, really? Mid March or so? It is winter. So, I, I, as I always said in Saskatchewan, we rob a crop between two snows. So <laughs> there's this kind of there's this uh, uh, all intensity that you know you got to put it in the ground at just as soon as it's possible because if you don't, if you wait too long in the spring, well, it'll tend to uh, it'll tend to just kind of get you on on the back end of it. You'll have to be a little more lucky to not get winter too quickly. Um, <laughs> so yeah, we um, we're in a very dry. Uh, farming zone we receive 12 to 13 inches of uh total moisture snow included mm-hmm. and uh to put it in perspective i think the national u.s average i think is 38 or 39 inches so we receive uh less than a third of rainfall and and snow accumulated um than the national average so it makes us very very intentional on not wasting any of that moisture and uh so we practice uh zero tilling uh meaning that we, you know we keep uh we try to we keep the stubble and then uh whenever our seeding equipment is made in a way that we can uh go directly in it without having to till the sword because anytime mm. you till the sword while well, two things happen you have uh uh, you you lose moisture through evaporation, and and that moisture once it's evaporated, well maybe it'll make rain somewhere else, but usually not right on top of you. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, and, unfortunately. And that's kind of how that goes, and um, and then uh, well the the so if if you waste that moisture, well you, you need to uh, so by keeping it, you're able to keep it for the crops. And the other thing that tillage does is that. Um, it uh, it releases an, uh, an impressive amount of carbon and 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 stops some of the um, uh, it, it 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 just for in in our area we we need to have that carbon to provide a good nutrient cycle and also uh, store the moisture that uh, that the little bit precious moisture that we get. Yeah, I know that's a hot button issue now, carbon sequestration and regenerative farming. So as somebody that actually, it seems like you have a lot of regenerative farming practices now, what are your thoughts on it? Like, is it something that works for both you and the environment? Oh, definitely. I think it's uh, um, it's it's a win-win. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'd say that's, uh, you know, some people are res- resisting that uh, in the... Um, in, in the grand scheme of farming, let's say, because well, we are, you know, as much we're very traditional, and that's a strength as farmers. Uh, but sometimes being traditional also makes us less uh, willing to try new things. And um, I don't mean that as a strong criticism. Like I said, there is there's a, a lot of good about being a traditional and and being grounded <laughs> the way farmers are. <laughs> Um, I and you know I'm not a pioneer in in uh, regenerative, regenerative agriculture. I'm probably an early adopter, let's say. But from what I can see, 
um, it's it's trying uh, is the, the farmer trying to look at nature and mimic it uh, mm-hmm. for the benefit of of uh, the crops, uh, the environment, and and society and in all all together. Um, and there's there's lots to learn there. Uh, you know, I was telling you tillage. I mean, uh, there's there, there's there has been efforts in zero tillage for you know. 30, 40 years now, um, and and yet some people have gone into it and gone away. Uh, our, like I said, our local environment makes it pretty much uh, imperative for us to use zero tillage. Um, but when we go into regenerative agriculture, what we're tr- trying to do is uh, foster the, the soil uh, microbiology. And instead of putting fertilizers, and not that we wouldn't use any um the we are trying to have the biology feed the plants mm-hmm. and that biology actually um, in partnership with the plants will try to have a, a much more uh, balanced diet for the plants which um, in turn uh, the goal is to have more nutrient dense crops now does it mean that it happens every time uh, i am not sure i mean uh, it, it's like you have um, you have great basketball players that that <laughs> practice, you know, you have and and, and become uh, all star, and then you have people that practice a lot and never, you know, never get anywhere. So I mean, still, it's it's a it's a journey, but um, you never get anywhere by not trying. And so we're that's that's for me, it's been one of the most exciting thing in the last uh, five years has been trying to see how do we become more intentional in in watching nature and try to instead of fighting against it try to see okay how do we use what we're what we're given and uh not not that we wouldn't use some of the tools um um like fertilizers or or uh, crop protection products um let's use them more judiciously uh you know if i get sick first i'm going to try to see can i Maybe get a good old grandma's uh, uh, <laughs> uh, bowl of, of, of soup <laughs> yeah, and there you go. Home a little bit and maybe get pump up the vitamins and see what I got and stuff. And do I just run directly to the doctor at the first sniffle and say, hey, uh, give me some antibiotics? No. And, and I think some people probably do. And, uh, or they you know, find the, the first pill that's going to make a difference. Uh, I think that's the way I want to look at it as farming is that at the end, if there's really a strong invasion of, of, um, of grasshoppers, um, I think I want to first try to understand why are they there? Are, are my crops deficient in some minerals that maybe uh, the, the grasshoppers were attracted to and they are eating them? Um, and can I do something about it first? If I can't, at the end, maybe I'll use some insecticide to not lose that crop. Mm. Um, having a living crop in the ground is so much more important than having really nothing. Uh, when you have nothing, it's all, I guess, the, the grasshoppers won. And, uh, but if I have to use the insecticide part uh, option, I want to make sure that next time I have other tools in my toolbox to not have these these grasshoppers. And um there is now a, a plenty of, of evidence that trying to 
foster biology so so the plant has more sugars in in its um, in its stems and leaves uh, by the bricks number bricks is uh, the uh, the uh, amount of sugar that's present in the plant insects will not eat a plant that is high in sugar and mm. and, and so uh, and, and it's just I mean it's easy to say it's the whole other thing to try to have the environment so that plant has the sugars available to not have that. And um, so that's, that's where we're going. Um, and we've, we've placed a, a goal on our farm uh, last year to say we want to be totally out of synthetics for fertilizers by in five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm tempted to say I want to, it's, okay, I'm starting this year because you always want to delay maybe that. Yeah. But I am, uh, from what I see from colleagues across across the U.S. that have, are maybe a little bit earlier into the journey, uh, I think it's totally feasible. Now, that doesn't mean we'll be doing, um, we'll have nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we'll be doing is we'll, we'll be um, making some amendments of, uh, of compost or compost extracts and we'll be uh, feeding the biology that in turn will feed the plants. That's awesome. I think that's such a good quote. You, you're feeding the biology that will then take care of the plants instead of just pumping in a bunch of extra nutrients. You're letting nature kind of figure it out because it's been doing it for centuries. Um, right. So how hard is it? I mean, let's say you've got a normal farm that does no regenerative practices. How hard is it to make that switch to where you're eventually going to be doing more regenerative ag on that farm? Um, it's as hard as, as changing what's in between your ears. <laughs> <laughs> so really, really hard. <laughs> <laughs> really, really hard. Some people, and it, it is daunting. I mean, um, uh, if you've been taught or, or if you've believed a certain thing mm-hmm. for years and years and years, um, your your bias we all have a bias whether um, is is difficult to change and it it has to it it has to take a lot of observation and that observation is key in all this to see mm. okay maybe maybe there's something there and you know be willing again like we said to to step out of your comfort zone um, and see okay is there something to this um, and and so yeah, like uh, it that part is and you know I I guess in one way I want to see yeah, it's really hard and on the other end um, maybe it isn't uh, the the thing is um, it's still a little bit in its in its pioneering side of it I mean mimic, mimicking nature sounds really simple uh, mm-hmm. but um, but environments are so different so in this day and age of YouTube's and podcasts and all the information that you can have, um, and you'll see a great uh, a great communi- communi- communicator farmer somewhere, you know, in Ohio, just telling you, "Hey, this is how you do it." Well, nevertheless, they get like forty inches of moisture. So, the first um, uh, first feel is that somebody will say, oh, "I'll never work here at twelve inches of moisture," and yeah. uh, and that's actually the. I mean, it's maybe not totally false, but that's the wrong approach. Is now, how can I adapt that? Is there something from that practice that's going to make a difference, I, you know, in, in at my spot? And I think um, that that's where the problem becomes is how do you decipher and you have to go through trial and error. But, you know, uh, you can only afford so much error before um, 
before you're you're broke. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, being uh, all you know, the, there's all these catchphrases about being sustainable and natural. Um, if you're doing a practice that uh, is going to make you broke in three years, and then uh, then somebody else gets your farm is and is going to do all the wrong practices, well, you haven't yeah. accomplished anything, right? So that's uh, that's that's really the spot is uh, and and so for me, it's it's been just trying to see to learn from other farmers across the U.S., but also to to find these people that uh, that are willing to step out of the comfort zone, maybe more so than others, mm-hmm. uh, and, and try to see, um, you know, I've got friends, uh, like uh, a guy like, uh, Corey Falk, he's kind of doing some of these same things. And, uh, and so, uh, it won, uh, some, somebody like him and I have a friend in, uh, Derek Axton in, in, uh, South of, of Regina Saskatchewan, same thing, and, you know, a number of people and you start to have a network and, and that's so important because, mm-hmm. Um, you want to see what other people are doing and, and exchange things and, and uh, well, try to be vulnerable to them as well. Mm. Well, I did this and this didn't work or didn't seem to work. And same thing, they share, you know, and then share, share some of uh, my successes and go forward and no year and no two years the same. So what, what doesn't work this year uh, may work next year and vice versa. And so by having this, this um, network of people makes it uh, makes it easier to go forward with with uh, practice, whether it's regenerative practice or a uh, different type of equipment or or even, yeah, how do I deal with uh, succession succession or transition planning here? Um, and so it's yeah, it's important to have a, a good group of people um, that, uh, that do that. And then um, I think what's important too is when you learn from all these people, um, is to be ready to share it with uh, with people that are maybe passing by and say, "Hey, uh, Frank, what's what's going on here? You've done some chickpeas and flax here that kind of looks like different. They kind of <laughs> mean that it looks like a mess, <laughs> but it's staying polite. <laughs> and and you know they may actually say to some people, well, I don't know what he's doing out there, but so you can <laughs> you have to be." Uh, Oh, put sometimes some of the pride away too, and say, "Well, okay, I'm, I tried something. It uh, it may work, it may not, but we're going to learn something. And then, if it did, um, um, why it worked, try to try to share it. Uh, if it didn't work, also, there's failures are are good in themselves, is that they allow you to see, okay, this didn't work. You 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 learned something, and in this day and age, it seemed like everybody is." push to only show their success and you don't you learn something from success but often i mean a lot of the greatest discoveries have been discovered by by mistake so uh, it's important to look at that too what did we learn from from something that seemingly didn't work yeah i mean kind of in your experience what were some things that you kind of learned along the way that you tried something maybe it didn't work or maybe you like you were learning from your friends and your colleagues, like, hey, try this, and then it did work. So in your experience, what have you kind of seen there? Yeah, actually, so um, I, I want to say that really cautiously is that, um, so regenerative agriculture uh, has been a lot about cover crops. You pick any uh, mm. any farm magazine or a lot of things uh, talk about cover crops, and I, uh, you know, I get it. It's, it's, it's a, it's a I, I mean, on, on, um, 
the the um, the idea of cover crops is is super. Has so many advantages. You have a living root in in the ground, which feeds the biology and different things, and and provides tilth and increased organic matter. Um, our challenge, as I said earlier, is is the fact that uh, we are in a very dry region, mm-hmm. and uh, we still have uh, let's say a third of the farm is in fallow. Fallow being a year that no crop is being grown and you try to keep the weeds all controlled uh, and try to store moisture from, from uh, uh, that's, that, that year's moisture so you have a bit of a reserve for next year. Um, so if you put cover crops on there and you've got something that's growing, yeah, you're going to feed your biology and yeah, you're going to increase organic, um, organic matter. But there's actually a strong chance that you've also used all the moisture that that fell that year and you have no reserve for next year. So the next year um, you have a kind of a you could have a mediocre crop unless you had a, a high rainfall moisture. So so I could just say, OK, we did that. Uh, last year we did actually. Um, so a year ago, we did a fair bit of cover crops. It was a dry year. It pumped all the moisture. This year was extremely dry. And then all in once the crops we had on that were pretty much a failure. So somebody could say, well, it didn't work. It's uh, it's 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 a bad, you know, it's a bad practice. I'll never do that again. Um, I think there's something to the cover crops and we just need to figure out how to adapt it. Mm. We need to figure out how to uh, what species to put in there. Um, and, and I also... You know, as I said, we had two of the driest years on record. Uh, you can't. Well, you gotta look that as as one one um, aspect that that made it uh, more difficult. Uh, nevertheless, if I stay, if I st- if I if I'm stubborn, which I am anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but if I'm uh, stubborn and say, you know what, they say that it's working, so I keep doing it. I'm gonna keep doing it. And uh, well, sooner or later, I, it's in, and it keeps doing the same. They, they, so that's the, the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different different result. Yep. Um, I think we just need to tweak it. And some of what we're I'm looking at right now is maybe we um, um, let's say we get a normal year of moisture at 12 inches. Uh, our soil will maybe retain four to six inches. So what what do we do with the other six? Did they run off or did they get evaporated? And why wouldn't we use them in, into a cover crop for maybe six weeks or uh, something that a very low density so it doesn't take nearly as much as much moisture? And so it puts the microbial life in, in life support, let's say, and uh, increase some organic matter. And then, yeah, then we maybe have the later end of the season to uh, to store some moisture. These are concepts, and I'm you know, and that's the thing. I'm I'm talking to people in university, talking to people that uh, supply cover crop seed, and uh, and try to see okay, how do we navigate this? And before we say it just doesn't work here, well, let's see how we make it work because the concept is really wise. There's a lot of wisdom in in the concept, but we can't just uh, expect for it to work just just like we had, you know, 40 inches of moisture. 
Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of experimentation. What's going to work one year it might not work the other year, and you've got to change it and to adapt to it. And I mean, I feel like that's the key word there. You've got to adapt, like no matter what's going to happen, because every year is going to be different. The soil quality is going to going to vary. So, I mean, you've got to adapt or die. I mean, it seems like that's kind of the answer sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and before I forget, um, so you told us that you guys are also in the process of selling direct to consumer. Um, yes. So what was that whole process like and what was kind of the inspiration to do that? Well, you know, um, I, I grew up on a uh, on, on a farm in France and uh, my parents had uh, a farmer's market. They were going to a farmer's market mm. with potatoes Um and as a kid, uh, my grandpa gave me like three uh, chicken, actually, <laughs> and uh, laying chicken. And, you know, there were like, yeah, three eggs every day. Uh, and uh, and so, thought, oh, well, I don't know. I mean, we could, maybe could sell them to the uh, to the farmer's market. So, uh, yeah. So then, uh, well, then I had 12 chicken and then 50 and then 100 and then about 200 chicken. And we were selling potatoes and eggs and onions and 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 chalets uh on at the farmer's market and every so often well i mean often really i'd be going with the, my, my mom or my dad whoever was going and uh well they'd take a break for half an hour and i'd be uh you know at at the farmer's market uh selling potatoes and 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 we would sell potatoes in a way that okay what are you looking at making uh, french fries or are you looking at small things uh mm -hmm. smaller fingerlings or different things and and there was that contact, this this connection with the consumer, um, and and so, but it was a lot of work. I mean, it was a huge amount of work to do that. It was very good, uh, very good money, but a lot of work, and you had to be there pretty much like milking cows in a way. I mean, you mm -hmm. can say one week I'm not going to the farmers market because people expect you to be there. So as I was growing up, I kind of felt like you know this is not exactly what I want to do. I want to be in large scale agriculture. I I want to, you know, uh, have, uh, like I always, always say about farmers, grain farmers, I want to have the four by four farming, four weeks in the spring, four weeks in the fall, and 44 weeks free. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's what I want. You know, I thought that was a lot cooler, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and, but nevertheless, over time, you know, of, of farming, it seemed like um, there was something kind of missing is, you know, can we just, we, we sell our grain, it's commodity prices, you go to the grain elevator or the grain company and and you, uh, you, you put it through the elevator system, it goes on a train and then goes to a ship and, and then uh, it gets exported out. And, you know, I had the chance one time to be in, uh, in Mumbai, India and seeing uh, yellow peas from Canada being dumped, uh, you know, unloaded on, on the port and, and to see, okay, that's where my consumer is. Is is in India, and that's that's cool to see that most farmers don't get to mm -hmm. to to have that experience. But still, the consumer is so far away that it's tough to have that that connection. And no matter if it goes to let's say India or if it's going from you know let's say three forks down to California, you just don't have that that connection. So as we were looking at this farm and having the opportunity to be closer to the consumer, right? We started to think, you know, it'd be kind of neat to have our own brand of flour and see what we can grow. Um, and, and also I believe our efforts in regenerative agriculture are differentiating a product that with more nutrient dense density and, 
And then some people listening to that will roll their eyes and say, as if. But <laughs> I, I think there's such a thing today as you can, um, uh, as you do a, um, a good job with soil health, uh, it's a little bit like, let's say, you, you see strawberries at your grocery store and they look all nice and red. And you just say, yeah, you know, they look appetizing. I want these. You take them home and they taste like cucumbers. And and yet you, you have somebody, you know, you have strawberries in your garden and, and which um, or somebody's garden. And uh, they haven't really been pushed because there was no you know, no idea of, of trying to have a, a lot of production and they taste just amazing. And, uh, they, they, you know, what's it, it, what it's attributed to in, in a scientific term is the plant secondary metabolism, metabolites. And it's that extra thing. And I believe in regenerative agriculture, we can do that. And I, we, we're starting to see, we had some wheat, some hard white wheat that we had tested for nutrients and uh, and it, the test came back as saying these are just packed with nutrients compared to, you know, general wheat. So are you going to have every year? Uh, maybe not. But if you don't try, uh, there's less of a chance that you'll have that. So I, I think we're, we're looking at that. And so when you, you produce a commodity and you take it to the grain company, it's get it gets commingled with everybody and and. That's okay. I mean, it gets it maybe uh, uh, provides a, an average of things, but it, it doesn't get differentiated for the effort that that you tried into it. So, uh, we are we want to grow crops that, in turn, will will do uh, a very good job in in the health of of people. Will actually um, contribute to the health of people, and so by doing that. Uh, we also want to see how we can uh, market them directly to people. And that's, that was that, that journey was, okay, how do we closer to the consumer? We have our, our, we try to do practices that increase the nutrients and possibly the, the health aspect. Uh, And how do we combine that and create our own brand? And, and that's where, um, yeah, uh, our brand is living sky grains. And we just, uh, we actually just started the, our, our website um, here this this past week, and so we started to um, uh, we produce some flour and some just uh, grains and uh, of, of of wheat and uh, and and chickpeas, and we're in the process of starting an oil press for canola and flax as well. Yeah, so talking about that press, um, what's kind of going into that? I mean, you're going to have your own flour mill and a press like that. What's going into to that stuff? Because I always get fascinated by like oil presses because I always think about like the old timey ones for olive oil, you know, where they have the stones getting pulled yeah. by the ox and the crush it, crushing that. So what's kind of the whole process and the the idea behind getting that oil press on site? Well, um, so yeah, like anything, I mean... Um, it, it, isn't that interesting that, I mean, your, your thought of, of that is, is bringing you back to the old way that it was done. And, mm-hmm. and that's, that's beautiful to see that because we're still connected. Um, our, our mind is still connected to, uh, to how it used to be done. And, uh, so our press is a little more, a little more modern than that. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not a high volume or anything, but, uh, it, um, it, it basically, it crushes the, uh, uh, the canola seed 
and uh, and then there's the a screen that uh, that mm. lets the meal go out one end, okay. and then the oil is is getting uh, getting through uh, getting, getting through that screen, and um, has a little bit of impurity, so we let it sit for a couple of weeks, and um, and then you have what's interesting is uh, well, no matter what it is, I mean, when we look at our wheat flour or we look at the oil that we we have pressed. Um, it has n- it, it's hardly comparable to what we get in the store mm, and to really? a point where you kind of that this uh this canola oil is is a dark gold uh it, it actually looks like honey in some ways hmm. and and when you go to the store you'll see canola oil that's uh, more yellowish very nice looking stuff and and very good stuff um i uh I believe, and not only just believe, I, I just kind of see a difference in that oil, and we've uh, we've made uh, French fries with it, and you lower the basket of uh, potatoes from uh, potatoes from a local grower here, you lower that, and all in once this aroma, this um, steam comes out, and I find myself like it, it transports me to the when I was a kid and my dad was was uh, harvesting canola in a in a canola field there I, in France the the the, the uh, flavor or the uh, smells are exactly the same and which I don't get from the stuff I get in the store um, so I think right there you can also have this idea of the the plant secondary metabolites mm-hmm. in a scientific term but just basically having the taste of the terroir I mean. Terroir is an expression uh, uh, used for wine and the taste of like, you know, you, you use a, a wine variety, a grape that was uh, grown on, um, you know, on a hillside in France or in, in California. Uh, the fact that the, the, um, the, the soil will give it its own flavor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so by, by trying to do more of this biological side, you're going to have more of that flavor translate into the product that you grow. And so when I, I guess originally, I would have looked at that as a little bit suspicious and say, oh, here is somebody that's trying to just, you know, differentiate themselves. But it's tough to have this mindset when you start to cook with it and all in once it's like, there is something different here. I mean, it's just you can't can't go beside it. Um, so yeah, and on the uh, so that's with the you know the, uh, the the oil side of it. On the flower side, um, we have a uh, we have a male that's uh, um, um, a high impact male that uh, makes some really fine flour in one step in and basically uh, in a couple second step at low temperature. Uh, and, and what it gives us is a flour that's just extremely fine and it's still a whole wheat flour. Mm. And the people that have, have tried our flour, I mean, you know, originally we proceed kind of cautiously is that, okay, uh, we made some flour and we gave a whole bunch to friends. <laughs> that hasn't been all that profitable so far. <laughs> but to friends and people like bakers too and say, hey, what do you think of it? I mean. We think it's pretty good, but the test is going to be from people that really have no emotional attachment to it. And the comeback has been just amazing. Um, so we're, uh, I, I think it, we're, we're trying to compound different things together from 
from the, the, the right grain, the right biology, mm-hmm. um, the right tool uh, to, to get a product that, you know, just like compounding interest or you get something that uh, is, uh, is superior to what you may find in the store. Not that, and again, I don't want to just put myself as that what we're doing is just awesome and so on. But what we get to do is we, we get to control each step of the process from growing it to putting it into the, the, the mill to then having a product that will not have a, a been in a package for very long to the consumer. And with that, at the end, we can, we, I mean, it, we can pretty much put a claim that this product will, uh, will be beneficial for your health. Not that the product in the store is is, uh, is is not good. I think it's, you know, we've got good, safe products on the store shelves. What we do, we just put extra touch all along. Yeah, I mean, kind of going back to the relationship thing, it seems like it's more intentional. Like you're, you're building these relationships with consumers, you're doing direct, you're working with these bakeries, and you're also paying more attention to the actual product. So it's more nutritious. So I mean, again, it seems like it's just being more intentional. It's going to bring more and more to that product, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the one of the really um, neat thing is we have a, a variety of, uh, of of an old heirloom variety from Southwest France called the Rouge de Bordeaux. It's a wheat mm-hmm. variety. It's a red wheat, and um, we were told that possibly there's a different protein uh, in, in that wheat. And so we had it milled and, and some people were kind of saying, well, maybe that wheat actually would be okay for people that are gluten intolerant or celiacs. Oh, okay. Again, I kind of maybe roll my eyes a little bit, uh, you know, kind of, uh, is it all in, in a placebo effect or what? Yeah. So we, uh, we had a few friends, some that were intolerant. One friend was celiacs and he tried our, our flour and, and they were all actually didn't have adverse effect, which nice. were, that was amazing. I, and I still at this point, I mean, I can't put a claim on that. I can see that their, you know, their, their experience has been that way. And I have no reason to, to doubt the experience. Now, are they connected enough with us that they thought that way? So I guess as we as we sell that that flower, that Rouge de Bordeaux flower, and and we're we're looking forward to hey, is there really, uh, you know, can can we go stronger into saying there's there's something about it? So yeah, these and that's exciting. Once you have that, you um, I mean, as farmers, we always say we feed people. But when when you have on top the satisfaction that uh, you don't only feed people, you you actually make them makes them healthier, or mm. you know it's it's a it's a product that that is helpful in their life, uh, then uh, then I think the reward is even even more. But it takes uh, takes a lot of getting out of your comfort zone to do that. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I've been saying this for a while, and I mean, I think the closer the farmer and the consumer are, I think both are going to be better off. Like the consumer is going to be healthier because they know where their food's going to be coming from. They, they're going to make healthier decisions, and then it's be better from the farmer because they're going to make a little bit more profit, but they're also going to be selling their stuff a, a little bit cheaper. And so I feel like it's a win-win for both of them. I mean, of course, both have got to be intentional, but. I feel like it's a win-win if the farmer and the consumer are a lot closer um, along the food supply chain than they are now. Yeah, no doubt. 
No That's doubt. awesome. So yeah, your website is livingskygrains.com. Sky I'm checking it out right now. Yeah, you've got a bunch of products on there. Um, I'm going to have to try some. My wife loves to bake, so we're going to have to order some wheat flour yeah. and try that out. All right, out. that'd be awesome. And yeah. so you're also super active on Twitter. That's how I found you. You're just what, Frank Groenweg or at Frank Groenweg? Yes, yes. That's awesome. Um, yeah, Twitter is quite quite uh, quite the animal, really. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you, um, you see, uh, I mean, I, I enjoy being on there. I probably waste a fair bit of time on there. But that, a lot of things, actually, that I was talking about, um, uh, some of the people that uh, have been an inspiration to me are uh, I've met on Twitter or I've, and, and subsequently met them later or the other way around. Uh, there's a lot of great information and there's also a lot of, of uh, all anger and so on and yeah sometimes it can deter yourself but again i mean it's a it's a fact of, of surrounding yourself with the right people and if some people are, are not um i don't don't exactly want to you know make it the echo chamber and reinforce my my biases mm. but if some people are going to be um a ver- let's say on the mean-spirited um I think you still want to keep a few of them out there to know that these people are out there. But if they start to uh, to, to just lower your your mental health because of it, it's it's important to distance yourself from 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 these. Um, so it's it's a balancing act too, uh, because uh, if you just stay with the people that you like, well then uh, it's only gonna you know it's only gonna reinforce that, and it's so important to have the the opposite view to uh, to make you grow. I think. Yeah, I mean, if you don't expose yourself to different viewpoints, I mean, you're going to be naive and you're not going to grow and you're not going to change it all. So, and I mean, I, I've been tw- trying to be a little bit more active on Twitter and it's been interesting because I'm like, I'm trying to follow different people in ag and food and farming and stuff like that. And so there's a lot of, of there's a lot of opinions out there. And, we, you know, we live, I feel like we live in a day and age where we don't want to hear the other opinion, but we need to, like, we need to understand mm-hmm. that people are going to have different opinions and be okay with that, especially on a platform like Twitter where everybody can shoot out their opinion 24 seven. Yeah. <laughs> well, Frank, this has been awesome, man. Um, you are a blast to chat with. We might have, we will definitely have to have you on um, later on, but I mean, best of luck with living sky grains. I think this place is awesome. And I mean, it seems like more and more places are doing direct to consumer. So this is awesome. And we wish you guys the best of luck. Well, thank you very much. That was an awesome conversation here, and I look forward to another one. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for listening to this episode with Frank. Um, be sure to check out livingskygrains.com as well as Frank's Twitter, which I'll leave in the description below. If you enjoyed this episode and if you want to learn more, go to thefarmtraveler.com to see more awesome episodes. And of course, Whether you're new here or whether you are a listener that's been here since day one, um, consider sharing with a friend or family member. That helps us out a ton, and it helps us grow the show. And even if you want, leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. That's really how we kind of up our place in the charts and more and more people can learn about farming and the whole Farm Traveler podcast. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.